Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. None of the disciples could bring themselves to ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread, and gave it to them. He did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. When they finished eating, Jesus asked Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my lambs. Jesus asked the second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Simon replied, yes, Lord, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, take care of my sheep. He asked the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was sad that Jesus asked him a third time, do you love me? He replied, Lord, you know everything, you know I love you. Jesus said to him, <clears throat> feed my sheep. I assure you that when you were younger, you tied your own belt and walked around wherever you wanted. When you grow old, you will stretch out your hand and another will tie your belt and lead you where, they, where you don't want to go. He said this to show the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. After saying this, Jesus said to Peter, follow me. Okay, it's the word of the Lord. So I have a confession at the outset of this sermon. I know next to nothing about sheep. Um, that's it. Like, like, um, the, we had some really beautiful photos taken a couple weeks ago, so you might think that I know something about sheep. Uh, Emmett uh, even knows how to feed sheep. There's another picture, I think. Yeah. Um, we were around sheep for approximately 20 minutes in clothes that you wouldn't normally try to be around sheep in. So I am not a shepherd, and I don't know sheep. Uh, sometime, though, you might want to pick Jacob's brain about goats as he's been living amongst them for the last year or so. Right now, he's on his honeymoon, and when he comes back, he'll be living with Sadie. And so I'm sure he'd say this is a significant upgrade in his living situation. Um, but I have a little bit of insecurity about preaching a sermon and not knowing the shepherding trade. Um, it, it cuts a little deeper um, and is kind of a vulnerable thing to stand up in front of someone on one leg and try to talk about something they don't really know. But also it gives way to another confession. You didn't know there were going to be all these confessions, right? Like, seriously, though, I, I feel a little guilty um, kind of like a fraud, because like back before Easter, uh, we were wrapping up the I Am series that, um, that became this We Are series, and I was set on Palm Sunday to stand up here and to talk about Jesus, who is the good shepherd, but also says, I am the gate for the sheep. And some of the main points of that sermon, if you uh, were listening and remember, is that Jesus protects us, Jesus brings us in, and just hours before, I'd woken up to find that overnight some predator had gotten in our chicken coop that I'd constructed and taken out like a quarter of our small flock. And in the bustle of the morning, I had to conduct an ad hoc burial before I even got to church and then pretend like I knew something about keeping things safe. <laughs> it, was really, it was really sad and really awful. Um, I also realized on this Mother's Day, um, and, and there's, 
we already had one uh, Kelly Lattimore uh, icon. There's another one that I wanted to show you that is a little newer that I think is really cool, called the Good Shepherdess. On, on Mother's Day, I realized like, some of these feelings of failure and ineptitude or lack of knowledge plague so many of our moms and like, are fed by a culture of perfectionism and knowledge without wisdom that insecurities get preyed upon, and it seems like everyone else knows what they're doing at all times, and we are experts on exactly nothing. Um, the most significant parenting memory for many of us are not the hundreds of small successes that we have along the way that go unnoticed or uncelebrated, but like the giant loss or failure that makes us have regret, and we just carry that regret and we replay that in a loop. So for this reason, I love our passage today with all these things running in the background. It's a bit of an alternative take on the meal on the Emmaus Way that Justin uh, selected last week from Luke's Gospel. We remember Jesus um, was walking with his disciples, the resurrected Jesus. They didn't recognize him until he sat with them and took bread, blessed, broke, and gave it to them. And then it says their eyes were open. They realized who they were dining with. Uh, this one comes from John's Good News account, and it seems that Jesus, who had come all the way down on the cross, was now carving out a new resurrection way for his friends and his family, and he was really into these pop-up meals. It's weird that we have different gospels with seemingly different post-resurrection meals. It says this is the third time he appeared to his disciples. Like, it's Strange to me, especially like given recent things, you'd think he might have a different strategy. He'd come up with like a multi-million denarius campaign, maybe called I Get You or something. Um, but Jesus instead shows up with fresh scars in his hands and his feet. And he just is really into fishing and walking and taking and blessing and breaking and giving bread at like an alarmingly normal rate. We think on this unchangeable hinge of history, this cross, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that everything on the other side might be different, but it's actually kind of the same, but in a different way, maybe. The meal we just heard about happened with some of his fishing buddies. He says, come and have breakfast. That's Jesus's invitation to his traumatized group of friends who begin to recognize him only as he hosts and speaks to them. He engages Peter, who you just have to think is running these tapes over and over in his head of the last time he saw his friend, the way he denied him three times, even though he swore he wouldn't do that, and then he did it, and then he said, oh, shoot, I did that. Could Peter even maybe had considered himself a friend anymore? I would imagine Peter would be the sort of guy who wouldn't go to the funeral because of all that guilt and shame. Could he even consider himself a Christ follower since he was more of a Christ fleer? Jesus calls him Simon. Maybe that's kind of resetting the clock for Peter going back to the start, stripping away the artifice or the pressure of having to be Peter, the rock, the solid one. He's just John's son, Simon, his given name. Jesus asked him three times, do you love me? And I have to think these three asks 
they're almost awkwardly repetitive. Like, especially how we split it up on the slides. I was glad they said, and he said a third time, lest Gary think that he just was reading the same slide over and over. It says, do you love me? I think it happens three times in order to unwind, to undo, to redo these three denials. I don't know the guy. Never seen him. Don't ask me. Jesus is remaking Simon Peter into one who confesses rather than one who denies. This is the rock upon which the church is built. Foundational for our common life together is Jesus providing the faith for us to hold on to even in our failure. Forgiveness for our sins. Jesus then has a request. Well, if you love me, feed my sheep. This feels both practical and really theological. Jesus is setting up sheep care for when he will be leaving. It's always good to do this for pets when you go out of town. But he's also entrusting Peter. And remember, Peter's not previously a very trustworthy guy. He's also, through Peter, entrusting the church, also not super trustworthy people, with the job of being a shepherd. He's saying, you guys will be shepherds. Peter, you're a shepherd. In, in some sense, I feel kind of good about this request because we don't have much evidence that Peter knew much about sheep. There must have been kind of a steep learning curve. But we can piece some bits together from this very central image throughout Scripture of God as a shepherd, of Jesus as the good shepherd, to get a better picture of who we are. There's this weird thing going on there, this sheep-shepherd thing that's almost like a hyphen in the middle. It's a cool image, and it shifts and it slides in Jesus' hands, kind of like host and guest. <laughs> because in Jesus, we have the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, right? But we also have the good shepherd who takes care of the sheep. It's not an either-or. It's much more of a both-and happening, and I think that's true for us, too. That is who we are. In some sense, we are all together, always sheep and shepherds. We are the ones who need care, and we're the ones who do caring. We're the ones who are hungry, and we're the ones doing the feeding. It seems that Jesus is imagining a community growing in his image and likeness and joining him in this good, slow work. That is a community that is dynamic enough, caring enough, and discerning enough to know how to do this and to actually get kind of good at it. To get so good at it that we don't all have to be doing it all at the same time. Some of us can rest and be served, and some of us can work and do the serving, and we can rotate and work that out. That we can know how to find and offer hope, healing, and hospitality because Jesus, the good shepherd, and the Lamb of God stands at the center of our fellowship. This feels like the plot of a hilarious and touching rom-com movie where, like, unreliable, selfish city slickers then move to a small town and, in so doing, find meaning in their life as they inherit their parents' sheep farm. That's kind of what Jesus is doing when he says to Peter, feed my sheep. And he says to all of us, feed my sheep. You can't even remember or are trusted to feed yourselves, but I want you to feed my sheep. So what does this mean? Well, 
means that you will not get a sheep are dumb sermon from me. Um, sorry if that's what you're really into. Um, I, think, I think a lot of modern Western pastors are kind of in my shoes and not showing or not knowing much about sheep. I went over to Andy and I said, I'm going to preach a sheep sermon. Like, buzz me if I'm, if I'm really bad about my knowledge of sheep. And he says, I don't know anything about sheep. Um, so that, that's good. But if you're a pastor and you don't know that much about sheep, like intimately know about sheep, why do some pastors rush to start to denigrate their flock? <laughs> I have no idea. It's a weird impulse, weird pastor things, right? It does seem kind of convenient, however, in many cases stand in front of people as the one in charge and to tell them how dumb they all are and how much they need to be led, right? I have a couple of farmer friends, though, and they do this job in a really like, caring way. It is more of a calling and a lifestyle than a job. And it's not because it gets them the big bucks. It really doesn't. It's, it, they would never think about talking about their sheep in a, in a way like that. They care too much. They know them too much. To be a farmer, to be a shepherd, to be a parent, to be a friend who is any sense good is to be so close to, so attentive of, and to have such a deeply loving gaze for the person or thing in your care that you would never call them dumb. You would have better words. We, we always tell our kids, you need to have better words than things like dumb. You, you also don't, you know them well enough that you don't have a vision that is like clouded or naive, but is, is knowing, is affectionate, is sacrificial. I will say, though, that in reading and doing a little bit of extrapolating from my chicken tending, um, Sheep would more accurately be described not as dumb, but as vulnerable. Sheep are vulnerable. They're not very high up on the food chain, <laughs> like chickens. Chickens also, and sheep, they lack natural defenses, especially if you have city chickens and you take that hen out of there, oof, it's bad news. Sheep don't have great internal GPSs. This is kind of the ongoing joke in scripture about sheep. Uh, I think the like churchy euphemism is prone to wander, right? And lastly, sheep are prone to, and I think this is important for us as shepherds and sheep, sheep are prone to disintegration. They're, they, they need to be herded. They need to be kept together. So this is the setup for Jesus's famous 99 and one parable. He shows a deep unwillingness to absorb the loss as just something that happens. The world that Jesus imagines for us and the culture that Jesus imagines us crafting through his spirit is one that recognizes who is not there and sets out to find them and pull them back into community life even as the flock rolls their eyes that it wasn't them this time, <laughs> right? I'm sure when I said these things, your mind like quickly raced to someone in your life who has these characteristics, defenseless, directionally challenged, disintegrated. Maybe that's you right now. Like maybe that's how you're feeling. Sheep are vulnerable creatures. Jesus knows this. 
I think that's precisely why Jesus embodied the role of the Lamb of God, led to the slaughter on the cross, silent as a sheep before his shearers. I think that's also why Revelation, like, shocks us with the big reveal, surprisingly victorious, the slaughtered lamb laying out a feast, reigning with a coronation that would make King Charles blush. So when Jesus passes the baton to Peter, when he hands off this role to us, he's calling us into this work of feeding. He's calling us to take care of people who can't take care of themselves, but also into a life where we open ourselves up to the care of others. Maybe that's a good reflection on this Mother's Day, ways that you have or have not been able to open yourself up to the care of others. It's, Jesus is inviting us to a place where we can respond to his voice. The sheep know the shepherd's voice. That we can be called home by the shepherd. In the last few years, there's been kind of a resurgence of interest in sheep and shepherding, not quite as much as like sourdough bread during pandemic or something like that. But this like pastoral lifestyle, I think some of it is that, that vulnerability and that disintegration that we feel. And there's this writer, James Rebanks, he's an English sheep farmer, and he writes beautiful prose about his life in shepherding Herdwick sheep. Uh, I love the tag the publisher put, it's bloody marvelous, right? Um, he also, in a more modern shepherding twist, he has an active Twitter account where he is the Herdy Shepherd One, at Herdy Shepherd One, and posts pictures of his sheep like eating. I think this one says, uh, Herdwick's gonna do what Herdwick's gonna do or something like that, you know? Um, in his writing, he details like the care and the intimacy that characterizes not only the work that he does, but also the life that he has chosen. Make no mistake, the life that he's living, any life of a, a modern shepherd, requires so many decisions not to be sucked up into the mainstream culture of either industrial farming or for him the life of an author who starts to tour so much he gets disconnected from the soil and the sheep that made him interesting in the first place. Um, this is kind of like be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you don't conform to the patterns of the world. Rebanks tells stories about how his work is, is hard and it is sad and it is good and it is beautiful and it is connected to the story of his place and his family that he inherited the sheep farm and also the ways that it is so precarious because of industrialization and globalization and climate crises and speed and scale and depersonalization and environmental degradation. At the core of his vision of the good life is a life that is small and slow. It's a life that nurtures and protects. Simply shepherds feed, protect, heal, find, integrate, and call to their sheep. And he narrates it all. Uh, during the height of the pandemic when we were all virtual um, and our time together was very limited, uh, what we were able to do, people would often ask me, what is it like to pastor in a pandemic? And it was always kind of like a little bit of a morbid curiosity. And, and, and the image I got was like, it feels like it might feel like trying to shepherd by, like via walkie-talkie or drone. 
Like to, to know like where your people are and how they're doing and who's hurting and who's doing great um, and who needs to be pulled back in. Shepherding is a practice of presence. It can't be easily automated. And so um, kind of to close with this, there's a portion at the end of uh, James Rebank's memoir, The Shepherd Life, that uh, theologian Stanley Hauerwas picks up. And uh, Rebanks deals, uh, details the realization that he had one spring. He, apparently, especially in the harsh climate where he's at, you just basically spent all winter trying to keep these things alive so that the spring comes and you can put them out to pasture and that they can kind of do for themselves the things that sheep love to do, graze and climb and, and just live amazing sheeply lives, right? Um, and so uh, he, he, he returns them to the fields after the harsh winter and he delights in watching sheep just being sheep and making their way home. And so much of his work was keeping and protecting them. And a lot of that work is exhausting and invisible and non-obvious. He's empowering them to do what they should be doing. He lies down and rest and watches the clouds as his sheepdogs do also what sheepdogs are supposed to do. He empowers them to do what they should be doing at the nexus of training and instinct. And it occurs to James Rebanks at that moment, whose life had been no picnic, but he says to himself, this is my life I want for no other. This is my life I want for no other. This is a really humbling and exciting thought. I hope that you've been able to slow down long enough to have this thought at some point, maybe just for like a second, and then that house of cards tumbles and it's like, oh, my life. This might be the whole goal of this sheep shepherd life of feeding and leading, of being fed and led. This sort of gratitude and abundance it's not unfamiliar to the, the biblical picture, like I think of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 has got to be the, like the only verse that must be read in King James Version, right? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He maketh me to lie down in green pastures. He leadeth me beside still waters. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of mine enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil, my cup runneth over. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So in the hands of a theologian like Stanley Harawas, he grabs this and he says, if any people should know what it means to envision a good life, it surely must be Christians. Yet I do not think we have emphasized sufficiently why it is so important to live well, and perhaps even more significantly, what living well even looks like. I am not, of course, suggesting that what it means to live a good life will be the same for everyone, but what I do believe is that to have lived well makes it possible to want no other life than the life we have lived. To want no other life than the life each of us have, have lived, a life that 
often has moments of failure or betrayal, is made possible by what we call the forgiveness of sins. Friends, this is what is being held out for us, what Mary Oliver calls our one wild and precious life. This is the life that is so important to the good shepherd who feeds us and leads us, whose voice we should be hearing and learning to recognize and answer that he would lay down his life for us. This is the good shepherd who calls us also to feed and lead and call others who are vulnerable, to reintegrate them into this good life together, to prepare a table even in the presence of our enemies, to be pursued and wrapped and hidden and ensconced in goodness and mercy all of our days. Will you all pray with me? Lord, we thank you that this good life is possible together. We thank you that all of the needs that we have, all of the needs of this world are known and met by you. Lord, where we are hungry, fill us and feed us. Where our neighbors are hungry, help us fill and feed them out of your abundant mercy. And Lord, where we're aimless or disintegrated or even disinterested, uh, Lord, lead us. Call us back to yourself. Guide us in your way. Give us rest besides still waters. Lord, make us into a community of people um, who are finding out and crafting this good life together. We pray all this in the name of Jesus, the Good Shepherd. Amen.